light of infinite. The majority of us have the best of intentions, but life sometimes gets in the way. Even when we fully promise and believe that we are going to help a friend out, there are times that in the end, it doesn't work out how we were thinking. It's these promises said with such love and enthusiasm that give us hope and make us feel that we aren't alone. The flip side is when empty promises leave us feeling misled, helpless, or stranded. We shouldn't commit to things for which we don't actually have the time. Language is powerful. As we covered three weeks ago in the Torah portion Chukat, we learn from Hashem, from God, that words create worlds. In the beginning, God spoke existence into being. It's the same with each of us. Speech is a way to connect and create or to disconnect and destroy. Thinking about Nidarim vows in this parasha, in this Torah portion, brought to mind a song from my favorite band, the Beastie Boys. And it's titled, Don't Play No Games That I Can't Win. And it features Santi Gold. It's one of these singles off their album, Hot Sauce Committee Part 2. They never intended to make part one. And maybe any piece of art that's released is actually part two, as part one is only really known to its creator. The song title came to mind because I was thinking about how often people say that they will do things, bli neder, in other words, without a strict vow. It's a way for people to say, I do intend to do this, but without the weight of a vow. It's a way to play the game and ensure that you never lose. The verse that opens up our double parasha of Matot Maaseh reads as such, Moshe spoke to the tribal heads of the Israelites, telling them that this is the word that God had commanded. If a man makes a vow to God, or makes an oath to obligate himself, he must not break his word. He must do all that he expresses verbally. If you've heard someone say bli neder after agreeing to do something, it comes from this very verse. When it says, he must not break his word, this creates what's called a negative commandment. It's a prohibition against not following through on what you commit to. The word neder means vow, and over time, the word has come to mean all types of oaths and vows. But there's a halachic distinction between a neder, vow, and shvua, an oath. A neder creates an obligation with respect to objects, whereas a shvua creates an obligation only with respect to the person who makes it. So if a person makes an oath that he will not do a specific mitzvah, meaning, let's say, sitting in a sukkah, the oath does not exempt him from the duty to perform that mitzvah, from that commandment. This is because we've already vowed at Sinai to perform all the mitzvot, all the commandments. So such an oath is therefore meaningless, a shvuat shav. But a person can make a neder, a vow, to not sit in a sukkah, which applies to the sukkah rather than to themselves. A typical neder or shvuah invokes God's name. Though there is a concept of yadot nedarim, extension of vows, which means that even if you exclude God's name, it's still considered a vow. Taking that even further, there's this notion of kiniyeh nidarim, idioms of vows, meaning that even if you promise or commit to do something, but use any similar language to a vow or an oath, it's as if you're accepting the full legal commitment. This brings to mind the phrase, my word is my bond. The phrase dates back to merchant traders in the late 1500s, who, before the custom of written pledges developed, would have verbal agreements and use that phrase as legally binding. With that said, when someone says, I will do X, that person is saying, I am not making a vow, but I will try to do X. People say it so often because swearing or making an oath is considered very serious, so much so that the prohibition of making a false or even a needless oath is one of the top 10 commandments, just as the commandment not to serve idols. The blineder doesn't take away the responsibility of what the person agreed to do, but it does take care of the prohibition regarding making and keeping the vow. 
The focus is still on the obligation as stated, according to whatever came out of your mouth, he shall do. This is all to be sure people will follow through with their word. As it is human nature to make a pledge in times of trouble and sometimes later regret having done so and find excuses not to follow through. As it's written in Kohelet, do not let your mouth make your body sin. Emphasizing vows and oaths as a commandment is meant to shed light on the power each of us have when using speech and choosing words. Inspiring words to a friend or a stranger can give them life, chiyud, and perhaps inspire them to do the same for others, bringing more love into the world. On the other hand, speaking harsh and negative words can feel like death. They carry the power to take happiness away from a person, inspiration away from an idea, and sometimes in extreme circumstances, they take value and life from a person's spirit. Earlier in Bamidbar, we read about the Nazarite, a person who decides to take a vow to live a strict and holy lifestyle. If one goes this route, one of the laws is that they are not allowed to drink wine or cut their hair or come into close contact with the dead. To complete their Nazarite ritual, they bring a sin offering to the Beit HaMikdash, to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Since the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, speech through prayers has replaced the sacrifices and those offerings. The concept of Nazir is introduced in the Torah in the following verse. When either a man or woman shall pronounce a special vow of a Nazir to separate themselves to the Lord. In connection to the Nazir and the vow, Unkelus writes, Yifaresh, as to explain, when a person becomes a Nazir, they must fully understand the weight of what they are taking upon themselves. So they must say aloud what their vow is in order to make their meaning clear. The term Yafli is used a few times in the Torah in connection to vows. In Vayikra 22.21 and again 27.2. The Hebrew root word is Pala, like Pela, which means wonder or amazement. The Ramban explains that we learn from this how amazing it is that Hashem will respond to the vows that we make in a time of crisis as a way to deal with our distress. A person dealing with a crisis or extreme stress turns to Hashem and promises to behave in a certain way if God protects them. The first time we see this is in Genesis in Breshit, when Yaakov makes his neder to the Infinite One before leaving Eretz Yisrael on his way to Badan Aram. What we see through all this is Hashem's receptivity to this type of vow. And we need this kind of vow in our lives. It helps us to feel hope and manages the stresses of living in this world. More than it being something Hashem needs or a gift to the Creator, the power here is the Pele, the amazing wonder that we can commit ourselves to God and have our vows honored even though they are made in moments of distress. During the first Beit HaMikdash, Hashem's splendor shone openly. Even during the 70 years in exile, there was still some of the divine revelation that was seen and felt in certain individuals. But during the second Beit HaMikdash, Holy Temple, prophecy ceased and the divine splendor became concealed. It's then the Chazal, our sages, ordained a number of fences and restrictions so that we would be protected from being overcome by darkness. The Lubavitcher Rebbe taught that the righteous are forbidden to restrict themselves with vows, whereas the wicked are actually duty-bound to do so. The righteous can observe who created these various elements of the physical world and see the great light in them connecting and elevating them on high. Chazal state in Talmud Kedushin in regards to tzaddikim, righteous ones, what the Torah forbade you to do is enough, as one who behaves as they should doesn't need to avoid the permissible. Abstinence and vows are actually meant for people who find themselves preoccupied by the physical world, caught up in the material. Most of us find it easy to get pulled away into the physical, away from the spiritual, let alone 
trying to elevate the material to spiritual. Nedarim vows are meant as a way to draw closer to the infinite by making more explicit commitments to abstain from the finite. A few more verses into this Torah portion, the Torah says in regards to a married woman that her husband can confirm or annul her vows. The Zohar states that the oath occurs in the Nukva, the female of Zerah Anpin, Aramaic for the Hebrew word Nekeva, feminine, referring to Zerah Anpin's bride, of the Zerah Anpin, and that vow occurs in the supernal Ima, meaning Bina, understanding. But in principle, both occur in the Nukva of Zerah Anpin. Rabbi Moshe Wisniewski, in his translation and commentary on the Rizal's Dvar Torahs, writes, The feminine aspect of the psyche is the drive within us to actualize God's purpose in creation, making reality into God's home. However, this drive must be coupled with an equal drive to escape the mundane reality of this world in favor of the abstract reality of spirituality. This is the male drive within us. The coupling is necessary because, left to itself, the drive to separate reality into God's home would have us penetrate further and further into the darkness of materiality, endangering us of being sucked into it as the memory of divine experiences fades. Therefore, as the sages say, vows ensure asceticism, meaning that it behooves us all to set boundaries for ourselves as we prepare to venture into the world of materiality in order to conquer it for God's purposes. So the Arizal explains this constructive force of vows and oaths with reference to their salutary effects on Nukva, the feminine archetype. Tefillah prayers inform our high level of speech by using the Hebrew words of the created world. The Hebrew letters and their associated numerical value are our mystical link and the code, in a sense, that connects our physical and the finite world to the spiritual world that is infinite. The laws and Kabbalah around speech and the power and meaning behind each word, their root and permutations and context, hold the key to elevating the mundane into the ineffable. As the Arizal teaches, our prayerful words prepare us to venture into the world of materiality in order to conquer it for Hashem's purposes. We see this through the mystical significance of a true oath, which is a mitzvah, a positive commandment, when done in the name of God, as it's written, and you will swear by His name. The first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph. The mystical secrets and all of creation emanate from this letter. The Zohar describes the parts of the Aleph and what they allude to, explaining the upper point alludes to the Keter, crown, which hovers above Chokhmah, wisdom, and Bina, comprehension. The lower point is likened to the Chirik, a single vowel sign, which is a single dot, a Yud, corresponding to the earth, Malchut. The line between the two is the Vav, representing the firmament between the two levels, the upper and lower Yud. And so the letter Aleph and its two dots, Yuds, which is 20, and its line, Vav, 6, has a numerical value of 26, the same as God's holy name, the Tetragrammaton, the Havaya. The Aleph also encompasses all of the ten Sfirot, from Keter, Chochmah, and Bina, through the six central Sfirot, to Malchut. While I sat under the orange tree at the Ben Yehuda's home, which I tend to do most every Shabbat here in LA, I was talking to David, the husband who grew up on the Karlbach Moshav Modi'in about this double parasha and the neder that's addressed in the first pasuk. We spoke about the power of speech that Rabbi Nachman and Rabbi Natan of Breslov so often discuss. And he explained that neder is called Pele and that Pele is Aleph, which is Keter. He quoted the verse about the Nazir and explained that if someone took something mutar aloud and said, I'm not going to partake of this, then they go from the 613 mitzvot that Hashem has commanded 
to 614 without breaking the prohibition of adding to the Torah. And something more Kabbalistic and less known is that something mutar and making a neder out of it is a way to elevate the mundane. Of course, when we eat food, we need to be mindful of why we're eating, what we hope to use the sustenance for and to say a blessing prior to it and after eating it. All of this elevates the food to a spiritual level. Making a neder does the same thing. So if you're telling yourself you are making a vow that you are going to eat something or going to do in any mundane act that isn't a positive commandment from the Torah, by making a neder, you can turn it into a positive commandment, thus adding to the commandments at least for that moment. It should be noted that every person should speak with their rabbi before making the darim, as most would suggest not to do so. All of this is to illustrate that we are all a Torah in and of ourselves, and that's why we are able to do it. And it is a pele, a wonder, that we are able to do so. It's what allows us to take the neder, that aleph, and return it to keter, its source in the sefirot. Something that David always stresses when we learn any lesson from the Torah is what it means in a person's life. Yitziat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, isn't only a story that happened to us in the desert thousands of years ago. It's the story and struggle of our daily lives. And when we internalize each lesson in terms of how we can elevate ourselves, that's when we find our personal redemption, which will usher in a full and final redemption for us all. Dive in deeper at lightofinfinite.com.